is certainly something that is that is in Exodus 17, in the part of Exodus 17 that we are in. So last uh, Exodus 17 really has two parts, and it's it's often that people break it into two stories and kind of think of them as as isolated. I don't think they are, or as as totally separate. But the beginning of uh, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, is water from the rock. So you remember that. Uh, and then the second part is called, in the ESV anyway, uh, Israel defeats Amalek. And so um, we, last week, we covered the first part, which was Exodus 17, 1 through 7, and the water from the rock. And anyway, that was the last, if you, if you remember, the last of three accounts that are considered grumbling accounts because the, the people, for, they refuse to trust that the Lord is going to provide for them. But, but the Lord always knows what we need and he always provides what we need. Not necessarily what we want. He always provides what we need. But you'll remember that the people were camped at Rephidim, um, where there was no water to drink, and the Lord was testing them, but they they decided to test him. Uh, And so their grumbling led to quarreling, you know, heated verbal contention. But but the Lord met their need anyhow, and and this is how he did it. Uh, Just a couple of verses The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. So in the next, so tonight, um, we're going to see the staff again, and then the next time we're going to see a discussion of other leaders in Israel, like elders. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out from it, and the people shall drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So you remember that God is actually the source of water. He's the source of living water, and he can provide water For whatever purpose he wants, whenever he wants, anywhere he wants, uh, he is the source. And so right after that, we're going to look at what happens next, which is what we're doing tonight in in the second part of of Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. And the ESV uh, entitles this, uh, Israel Defeats Amalek. Um, So we're going to use a slightly different title. This will be the title that we use for tonight. Yahweh's War with Amalek. Or you could say the Lord's War with Amalek. So it sounds a little bit different from the ESV's title, but but this is taken really right from the last sentence in, in chapter 17. Of Exodus, so here it is in in yellow. This is a quote um, that that Moses says, and the last quote is, uh, "The Lord will have war with Amalek 
from generation to generation. And from the actual text, it's, it's clear that the, the war belongs to the Lord. We're used to, we're used to hearing the battle belongs to the, war, to the Lord. Well, this is the same word, battle and war, the same word. And it is much like that. It's not exactly the same construction that you see with, with David when, when David says that, that the battle belongs to the Lord. But if, if you were going to translate it more directly from, from Hebrew to English, you, you might do this. You might say it this way. The Lord's war with Amalek, or the Lord's war against Amalek, will be from generation to generation. So it is a construction where, where the war belongs to the Lord. And so that's, that's where uh, this title comes from, the Lord's war with Amalek. So we'll have four points, really short points actually. Um, but the first one is a time for war. Uh, the second one is fighting the war. The third one is remembering the war. And the fourth one is the ongoing war. So let's begin with our first point. And you can turn to Exodus um, 17, 8, where we will begin. And the first point is a time for war. And so this isn't an original little line here. In fact, if you were in Pastor Dan's Ecclesiastes class during the Sunday school hour um, in the spring, we were on Ecclesiastes. This is from Ecclesiastes 3, where it says, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And then a little bit later in that chapter, a time for love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for Peace. So, a time for war. <clears throat> then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So, so why call this point a time for war? Well, three reasons. One of them, the, most translations, most of the English translations that we use begin this, this sentence with, then, as in a time, I think it's a, it's a good translation, although you could just translate it and. That word can also just mean and. They're, they're getting the then from the context. Uh, but I think it, it's right. But more importantly, uh, the second point that we've been making since the people left Egypt was that the Lord is leading the people. He's leading them exactly where he wants them to go, exactly in the time that he wants them to be there. He tells them where to camp. He tells them when to camp. And so here they are camped at Rephidim at the time that the Lord wants them to be there. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And there's one more reason for a time for war. And you'll remember this point um, if you were here a few months ago. We talked about it quite extensively. We made a big deal of this. Exodus 13, 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, 
God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God leads them long way around the wilderness because he doesn't want them to see war. I don't want you to see war because I'm afraid you might want to go back to Egypt if you see war. And so he doesn't do that. Um, they end up going through the Red Sea, right? When, when Egypt comes up from behind them, traps them up against the Red Sea, and you will remember this, Exodus 14, 14. The Lord will fight for you, and you be quiet. So I don't want you to see war. Now I'm going to fight for you. And not only that, but you're going to see the salvation of the Lord. And then we come to tonight. So I don't want, I don't want you to see war. I'm going to fight for me. You watch me fight for you. It'll be your salvation. And now uh, in Exodus 17:8, it's time to see war. It's time to, for them to fight. Uh, it is a time for war. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So, so what is this? Who is this Amalek that comes and fight with them? Well, well, they're a nomadic people from the Negev, which is in the southern end of Israel and south. So they, they uh, of modern Israel, they are in the southern part of the land of Canaan, in this arid, arid region in the south, the Negev. Um, and they probably came farther south. They would have had to come farther south to attack Israel. So Amalek is a man's name. So, and it stands for the people as well. Some of the versions translate this Amalekites uh, here. So it is, though, technically it's Amalek. Um, so, like Israel is the name of a person, the name of a man, and the name of a people, that's the same with Amalek. And speaking of Israel, Israel's original name was Jacob, right? As in Jacob and Esau. Well, Amalek, the person, is Esau's grandson. Uh, and so these are related peoples. And Jacob and Esau, as in and Israel, is represented by Jacob, who um, purchased the birthright and, and cheated Esau out of his blessing. And so it may be that they were predisposed to be anti people of Israel when they came to fight them. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So where is that? Well, Rephidim is the same place where God had them to camp where they had no water. So this is fresh in their minds. It's not just we're, now we're moving on to a different story. We're still in the same place. Uh, it's on the way from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. We're not very far from Mount 
Sinai, uh, and both events in Exodus 17 are at this place, and also Exodus 18 is at this place, and they don't really leave until the beginning of chapter 19, uh, just before they go to Mount Sinai. So that's the first point, only, the, only that very first point. Our second point is this, fighting the war. So this is probably the longest point, uh, but it begins with verse 9. So Moses said to Joshua, so the first thing we should notice is that the command doesn't come from the Lord, at least not directly from the Lord. Uh, the command comes from Moses. So Moses said to Joshua. So, so today, um, Pastor Terry in, in the Deuteronomy Sunday School class referred to Joshua and he, how he was being prepared to take Moses' place. Um, and this is the first time that Joshua was mentioned uh, in the Bible. So, so who was he? Well, here's, just, here's, here's who Joshua was. Um, his, he was the son of Nun, which people are often named by. We know who they're named by. Not in this, not in this chapter, but later you'll see that he is the son of Nun. Um, he's an attendant of Moses from his youth, so he starts really early, like probably here or before, slightly before. Um, he is a servant of Moses. He is the one who is going to take over from Moses to bring them into the promised land, and he becomes a brilliant military leader. Um, and here's what it says at the end of Deuteronomy, in the last chapter of Deuteronomy. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. And the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So this is, this is almost 40 years later when that, when that happens. So that's who he is. So that's who Joshua is. And here's what he tells Joshua to do. Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. So, so Moses entrusts Joshua not only to fight, which would be a big, a big thing to trust him in, but also to even select who was going to fight. He doesn't say take all the men of military age and go out and fight against these guys. He lets Joshua select the people who are going to fight. So our second point is fighting the war. So who will be fighting? Well, it looks here like it will be Joshua and the men that he chooses to fight the Lord. And then here's what Moses said he's going to do. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So top of the hill is probably where he can see what's going on in the battle, and maybe it's where they can see him as well, probably is. But anyway, that's where Moses is going. He's going up to the top of the hill, and he's going to take the staff of God with him, and that is the staff. It's also called the staff of Moses or the staff of Aaron, uh, but it is the one that he just recently, most 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 recent in their memory, would be. This is the one that he struck the rock with. So he takes that staff with him. It represents the Lord's saving power, um, and 
his great strong hand that he has. And we're going to come back to the staff a little bit later, but, but that's it. That's how, that's how this starts. Here's the, here's the plan. That's all we see of it anyway. There's no strategy discussed. There's no, there's no tactics discussed. They just go, it just says go fight. Go fight against them. Simple obedience. Uh, this is faith. So Joshua did as Moses told him. Just simple obedience. Really the essence of faith. What it means to have faith. So earlier we saw things like this. And Moses did just as the Lord commanded. And Joshua did as Moses told him. Abraham did the same thing when the Lord tells him to take Isaac and go offer him up for on the altar as a sacrifice. It says that he got up early in the morning, he saddled, saddled his donkey, he took, took along his servant, and he took Isaac, and they went. Simple obedience. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Simple obedience. Pretty simple statement. Pretty understandable statement. Simple obedience. Faith. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the mountain. So Hur is an associate of Moses. He's not a Levite. He's not a priest. Uh, He's from the tribe of Judah. But he is going to be entrusted. He and Aaron are going to be entrusted with with keeping the people in line um, when when Moses and Joshua go up on Mount Sinai. So again, this is the introduction to Hur. Um, He's got a grandson who helps work on, who is one of the people that work on um, the the tabernacle and the covenant, Ark of the Covenant, etc. So that's Hur. Um, Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. So you remember this, this story, right? He's up, on the, he's up on the mountain, up on the hill, I should say. Uh, looking down, he raises his hands. Uh, and when he raises his hands, Israel wins. And when he lowers his hand, Israel is losing. So... There's a lot of discussion about this on what is, what is this about. So it's common to think, especially um, in many years past, that this is an indication that Moses is praying. Well, I, I certainly think that Moses was praying, but there's, there's no real, real reason, I don't think, to think that, that lifting up your hands is, is just a cryptic way of saying that he prayed. He could, have just, he could just say that he prayed. Um, otherwise, um, when he stopped praying, well, why would he stop praying? Then they started to lose. Well, I mean, you could say it that way. Um, and, and the next verse wouldn't make that mean or have a lot of sense uh, if we took it to mean that. That it's just another way to say um, 
that he was praying. So there's another idea um, here. And when Moses raises his hands, the people fought harder. Well, to me, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, why would they do that? First of all, if they're fighting for their lives, right? They're fighting a battle. This is life and death. Um, Are you going to look on top of the hill, take the time to look on top of the hill to make sure that Moses still has his hands up before you fight? And then if he doesn't, we're just going to let him kill us. No, that, that doesn't really seem to make any sense either. So there must be something else happen. So what is this about? Is it about... Well, he's, he's got the staff with him, so you can assume that he's got the staff in his hand. Um, he may, he may not. But is there some secret power with the staff? We talked about this last week. No, there's no secret power with the staff, but God did miracles with it. The staff itself doesn't have any inherent power. Um, it is the power of God. So... Um, is it when they see that, the fighters see that staff, they, they work harder? Well, that's the same problem as the hands. Who's going to take the time to look to see if he's got the staff raised up? Of course, you're not going to do that, but it may be just as simple as this. And this goes way back to Exodus 4. Uh, at the end of the burning bush account, when the Lord tells Moses to go to the people and tell them he's going to get them out of Egypt... And Moses says this, this is the beginning of Exodus 4. Then Moses said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. And the Lord said to him, What is in your hand? And he said, A staff. Then he said, Throw it to the ground. And so he threw it to the ground. And it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand and grasp it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. There's that simple obedience again on Moses' part. So this is why I'm having you do that. This is what God says. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you that they may believe that's why he's got this that's why he picks the staff up or the snake up back then he's supposed to demonstrate that then so when they see that they know that they believe that the lord is with moses so it may be just that simple when they see moses carrying that staff they believe that the lord is with him is with them that he has appeared to them and that he has led them out of Egypt. So, God uses the staff so that people might see that he has it. Because he reaches out his hand and he grabs it and it becomes a staff. And God uses that so that they will believe. The staff is a symbol of God's power, that God actually is the power, and he has the power, and he wants to, he does this so that the people will believe. Next verse. But Moses' hands grew weary, or, but Moses' hands were heavy. 
So why were his hands heavy? Now we might think, well, let's see, he's 80 years old now. And so, of course, his hands would be heavy if he's trying to hold them up for a long time. He's 80. Um, well, here's what it says at the end of Deuteronomy, that same, that same part where it talks about Joshua. It says, though Moses was 120 years old, so another 40 years later when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. Since that time, no prophet has arisen like Moses, in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face for all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of Israel. So we don't get a picture here of somebody, it's just all frailty. Right, that that isn't the case with, with Moses. So it doesn't sound like, well, he only got tired because his, his, he was 80 years old. Well, that might have been part of it. I mean, anybody holding their hands up for a long time. But, but there is another important purpose. So let's move on. Uh, so Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone... And put it under him, and he sat on it. And while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So, so here's, here's the picture, right? Moses is up on the top of the hill with our Aaron and Hur. He's raising his hands up in the air. After a while, uh, even if you're 20, your hands are going to get tired, right? And so what they do is they find a big rock, they put it there so that he can sit on it, and they hold his hands up for him. They're supported him, like, like I saw Elaine doing earlier this morning, so holding her hand like this, or, or broken a wrist like this. They hold it up for him. And so, because they've noticed that, you know what, when he puts his hands down, we're losing the battle. And so when we raise him up, we're winning the battle. So, so let's hold them up. So they hold his hands up. And the last line here, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Israel wins. So the second point again was, was who is, or is fighting the war? So who's fighting it? Who is fighting the war now? Well, we've already seen it's Joshua. And all the men that were with him, whoever they were, however many they were. How about Moses? Moses is a key part of fighting this war. How about Aaron? Aaron's a key part of fighting this war. Hur. He's a key part of fighting this war. What about the Lord? I'm not sure if you've noticed it or not. Is the Lord fighting here? Um, so far tonight, it hasn't mentioned that the Lord is fighting for them. It hasn't even mentioned him in these verses that we've looked at so far. The Lord's name is not even in these verses. It's, it's not mentioned at all. So, so does that mean that they have been abandoned? Did God just say, okay, I got you by this first part of the journey. Now you go fight for yourselves. No, it's, it's not that. Um, 
He doesn't say it's your turn to fight now. So I think this is a little bit like the book of Esther, where in the book of Esther, the Lord isn't mentioned at all. And it's clear that he is working behind the scenes, and that's what is actually happening here as well. So the the Lord just doesn't leave his people alone to fight their own battles. That doesn't change. He doesn't do he hasn't done that before and he doesn't do it now. He doesn't just leave us alone to fight our own battles. So what is what is this about that then? If the Lord is actually fighting for them, does this mean that that they can just quit fighting? So what happens if Moses decides not to put his hands up anymore? Well, we know what happens, right? Israel starts to lose when he puts his hands down. What happens if Aaron and Hur don't hold them up for them? Same thing, right? What happens if the guys on the battlefield put their weapons down and say, Lord, you fight for me? Well, the Lord doesn't leave his people to fight their own battles, but he doesn't need us to fight his battles either, but he chooses for us to fight battles for his glory and for our good. So what is the deal then with Moses' hands? Moses' hands grew weary, and they took a stone, and they put him under them, and, and when he holds them up, Israel wins, and if they, he drops them down, Israel loses. So what's the deal? Well, it's probably, at least partially, the same thing as with the staff, but um, also it is likely this, that The Lord wants the people to know that he is working through Moses. He's working through Moses, even though Moses isn't strong enough to bear the burden himself. He needs other people to help them. He does this so that the Lord knows, or that the people know that the Lord is fighting for them. It's not Moses. He can't even hold his hands up anymore. The Lord is fighting for them. And so fight. So it really confirms what has been going on along. The Lord does things with Moses so that the people will trust him and he can lead them. But he's not strong enough to fight this alone. Moses is not, no person is strong enough to fight this alone. He needs help from the Lord. But here's the other thing. He needs help from Aaron and Hur as well. So you think, I mean, we might think, well, if, if, if we have the Lord, why do we need help from other people? Well, and especially a leader like Moses, why does he need help? There's never been anybody like him, right? There had never been anybody like this leader There's never been anybody that talks to to the Lord face-to-face before. There hasn't been 
anyone since. Except for, we know that the Lord arises. Jesus talks with, with the Father. So from the story, but this from this story and from the context around it, from both this story and the context around it, we know that Moses needs help, right? For the story that just ha- happened where he, he went to strike the rock, what does God have him do? Take along the elders. Take the elders with you. And here, Moses has Joshua pick people to go and fight for him, and then he takes Aaron and Hur along with us. Moses needs help. No person, no, no matter how good of a leader, is strong enough to do that because that's the way God wants this. That's the way God has designed this, that we as people need each other. And that is the same, that's the same in a church, right? We are all gifted with different things. No one of them is less important, right? And we are all tasked with and we are all supposed to use those gifts that God has given us for the building up of the body. That's just, just the same illustration that, that Moses has with, with Aaron and Hur. It's the same thing. That, that they need, Moses needs them. So, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So you can see Joshua gets the credit for this, and he really was fighting. So this is the, this is the first fight that, that Israel does. And, and uh, Hamilton, I think it is, points out this is the only one they win uh, until Joshua. Until Joshua, the book of Joshua. This is the only battle that they win until then. Um, until you get into the book of Joshua. So remembering the war, third point. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book. So this is the first time that the Lord's name has shown up in this part of the, in this little short story in this section of scripture. It's the first a number of other firsts. It's the first time that there's a command to write anything. You know that it happens in Revelation at the end um, as well. It's it's the first reference to any kind of writing. Okay, and it's the first time a book is mentioned. So so some of us have. A lot of books. I should say some of you have a lot of books. Um, Pastor Randy has a lot of books. Have you been in his office? Okay. I have a few books, right? Um, there was a guy I knew that had more books than Pastor Randy. Um, he, was a, he was a professor at Trinity Western when I was there. He was an adjunct professor. This is how well it... I remember him. I don't remember his name. Kind of an odd character. So I remember three things, three things about him. First, he introduced me to the sovereignty of God. Though that was a pretty big deal in my life. Secondly, I remembered that he liked Tim Horton donut holes. So if you've ever been to Canada, Tim Horton is their donut place. Okay? 
So he liked those little donut holes from Tim Horton. The third thing is that he had a lot of books, 20,000 books, claims to have read them all. I have just a few books, right? A lot of them I haven't read. Probably most of them I haven't read. So the question is, what good are they? Right? What good are they? Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua or put it in the ears of Joshua. That's the value in the book. Right? The Lord favors remembering things. It's a memorial book. He wants you to remember it. The Lord favors repetition. He tells you to repeat things to your children over and over again. Over and over again. Right? God is big on repetition and he's big on remembering what he has done. And he singles out Joshua here as the leader of the nation to make sure that he remembers. They make sure that he is the one that knows. He'll be leading Israel. That I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Let that one sink in just for a second. The Lord says, this guy, these guys that, you, that we just did battle with, I will utterly blot them out, the memory of them, from under heaven. So I can't even remember where I, where I heard this. But it was recently I heard somebody making the case for, or somebody talking about making the case for this, that we really need to stop, we really need to get away from believing in God. Especially, I mean, if you look at the God of the Old Testament, nobody can justify believing in God because of this, right? I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You'll even run into people say, say things like this. Well, I, I believe in the God of the New Testament, but the God of the Old Testament, I'm not so sure you know, I'm not, those guys, you know, they might just have been recording something that didn't really happen. I mean, God seems like he's pretty wrathful. I've heard that in seminary, by the way. So you've got to be careful what you hear. Um, but, so the question is then, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Is that fair? Is that a fair thing for... The Lord to say, does the Lord can the Lord say, I'm going to utterly blot out a group of people from under heaven, so that the only way that you're even going to remember them is because they're written in the book. So how do you deal with a statement like that? How do you deal with that kind of a question? Well, here's what it says in Psalms. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Put those together. 
The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works, and I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Both are true. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. The upright will behold his face. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness. That's the New American Standard Translation, ESV, of the steadfast love of the Lord. So that the Lord is against Amalek means he's for his people here. That he is showing his people steadfast love. So, does God actually do that? Does God actually wipe out people? If, if you, and, and is it the case that we're talking about, well, what do you do with all the innocent people in these Canaanite um, tribes and nations that, that you're supposed to wipe out? Well, there aren't any. Right? There aren't any righteous people in the nations that are going to get wiped out. In fact, God says that the reason they're, they're, I'm, I'm getting them out is because they are so evil, so wicked, and I do not want you, my people, to come in contact with them. There is no, there is no righteous person in that group. There is no righteous person. So, so it isn't that God wipes out the good ones with the bad ones. There just aren't any good ones. So if we think that God is not just by doing this, then we probably have the the wrong view of God and the wrong view of sin and how serious these sins are. But it's also not because the Israelites were more righteous than the people who were there. So here's what here's what uh, we'll be. I don't know how long in in Sunday school before we get to Deuteronomy nine. It's not going to be this summer, I think. Wherever Terry is, <laughs> it's not going to be this summer, probably. But do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Because it is not. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your own righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that that you are going to possess their land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So we don't know all the sins of the uh, Amalekites, but we do know this. In Deuteronomy, um, Moses explains why or what Amalek was doing that led to this. So this is from Deuteronomy 25. Remember what Amalek did to you. So this is 40 years later. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. So he took the people who couldn't keep up. Amalek attacked them. The pe- God's people who couldn't keep up or they were in the stragglers in the back Amalek attacked them 
We would probably call that some kind of a cowardly act now. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So, so Amalek is a problem for, for a while, for hundreds, hundreds of years. And God takes this command that he gave to them really, really, really seriously. So Amalek, the Amalekites, they uh, were harassing Israelites in the northern part of, of Israel. And, and, and Saul goes to their rescue, and he has been commanded, destroy them all. Right? Destroy the whole, all the Amalek, uh, Amalekites. Um, all the people, all the animals, destroy them all. So, so Saul goes, and he has a, they have a great victory. He captures their king, saves a few of the animals, so that they, he claims anyway, some of the best animals, so that they can sacrifice them. And, and Samuel says, why didn't, why didn't you do what the Lord commanded you? To wipe them all out. And Saul said, I did. Well, I've got the king here. Samuel says something. And what's this sound of the sheep that I hear bleeding? And so the Lord takes the kingdom away from him and gives it to David. After, because that's when that happens. That's when, when Samuel says, this is going to happen. Because you refuse to obey this command. So... David then fights them. Comes pretty close to wiping them out. Tries to wipe them out. But it, but it seems like, it, it appears that, uh, and I think a few, a few more recent commentators have mentioned this, that, that they don't really get wiped out until the book of Esther. So the king that, that Saul lets live, for a little while anyway, um, is named Agag. So Haman, the enemy of the Jews, that wants to kill all the Jews, is an Agagite. So probably a descendant of this king that, that Saul spares for a while, anyway. Probably some kind of a descendant. So when he is then hanged, along with uh, anybody with him, they're probably wiped out. We don't know of any other uh, Amalekites anymore. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner. So there's no mention of sacrificing on this altar. Not all, not all altars are sacrificed on. Uh, last point, the ongoing war. And this will be short. A hand upon the throne of the Lord. There's really a lot of question about how, what this actually means. Does it mean that the Lord swore or Moses swore by this? Um, not necessarily. It might mean that, that the hand is against the throne of the Lord. It might be talking about the Amalekites. No consensus on that. But the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation 
to generations. So this is going to go on and on and on. Like I said, for hundreds of years. Battles will be won. Battles will be lost. But in the end, the outcome is sure. The, sound, the, the victory is secure, as it said in that, that hymn we, we sang. Because it is the Lord's war. So, um, a guy named Enns, uh, a commentator named Enns, made, made a point that I think is right. That this is, this is an allusion to, he didn't put it in those words, but it's an allusion to, what, uh, to God's battle with Satan. Right, where Jesus in the first at the at the death and resur- at his death and resurrection wins the first battle, the battle's won. Right, the victory is secure. It's going to happen. And at the second coming, it will be completely. The war will be over. This will be accomplished. But in the meantime, there are struggles. The outcome is never in doubt. Right? The Lord is going to accomplish his purpose. He's going to do it. Um, God fights against his enemies. And when he fights against his enemies, he fights for his people. Just like, just like what Jesus has done. Right? Jesus fights for his people. And all creation will be brought under submission to him. And it is for his glory and for our good. And the outcome is clear. It's safe. And it always has been. So if we have faith in Jesus Christ, the victory is undeniable. It will happen. We are in God's hand and nothing can ever take us out of that. So let's, um, let's pray. And then we will have our final hymn. Uh, Father, we do thank you that, that we can rest assured that all of your promises are true. That Jesus has paid the price for our sin to restore our, right, our relationship with you and to give us righteousness so that we can approach you. And, Lord, that has been accomplished in the cross and in the resurrection. And we know that ultimately uh, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And so we look forward to that day. Pray that you would bless us in our fellowship time here uh, and as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen.